And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for being with me today. It is that time of the year where we get to talk about the, tr- the traditions of Christmas, and there's no other person I'd rather do that with than Ace Collins. He's a consummate storyteller. He's written over about 100 books, maybe at 99 or 100. I'm not sure if he's reached the 100 uh, book mark yet, but we're glad to have him on the program. Ace, welcome. It is a joy to be back with y'all. Uh, and it's 99 right 99, now. 99, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a book contract uh, on a book that comes out in 2022, but I'll probably have a book, before, two or three books before that. So I don't know what number 100 is going to be yet. I kind of hope it's it's something special, but that'll be up to my agent and the publisher that he sells the uh, proposal to. So right now, it's it's as big a mystery to me as it is everyone <laughs> else. Uh, well, I want to talk today about a couple of your books, uh, The Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. I'd like to start there, uh, if that's all right, with your permission. And you let's bet. let's start by just talking about how, uh, you know, maybe we should be careful that we wish for an old-fashioned Christmas. Yes, we should. If you're in the United States or Great Britain, you don't want a Christmas that goes back any earlier than 1840. Um, before that, Christmas was Mardi Gras on steroids in the United States wow. and, and throughout most of England. It's one of the reasons our, uh, Cromwell, when he overthrew the crown, outlawed Christmas in England was because it was a time of drunken revelry. Um, bands of men would go through the streets and go to the homes and businesses of wealthy people, and they would sing a song that we still sing today, We Wish You a Merry Christmas. Uh, but remember the line about, you know, we want some figgy pudding. Right. And then the line, we won't leave until we get some. That's kind of a threat, well, wasn't say, it? They didn't say figgy pudding. They would say things like um, you know, pints of ale or uh-huh. money. And it was trick or treat. And if you did not give them what they asked for, then they would take it. Hmm. And and that is why in America and in Great Britain for hundreds of years, basically, Christmas was kind of ignored by everyone but the Catholics and the Lutherans. Um, The Catholics and the Lutherans didn't have that British background. And so they had the old Eastern European traditions of family, but Protestant churches did not open on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day back then unless it fell on a Sunday. And Congress continued to meet on Christmas Day unless it fell on a Sunday up until about 1840. And what changed things? Two things. One, a British queen married a German prince. And when that happened, he brought all of those great German traditions to London. And when the queen started having dinners and having presents and decorating trees, suddenly the British did as well. Well, that didn't really take on take off in the United States just yet. But what changed it in the United States was a preacher uh, who understood what the wonderful traditions of Eastern Europe, Europe were like at Christmas, and he wrote a poem for his children to show them what it would have been like if they had been having Christmas in Germany. And the poem was called A Visit from St. Nick. We know it as was the night before Christmas. That poem was published in a local newspaper, picked up in a New York and Boston areas in newspapers, and suddenly went all across the United States in the 1840s. And department stores suddenly realized, and yes, there were stores back then, they realized that they could make a lot of money selling Christmas gifts to families for their children. And that Hmm. element of bringing Santa into Christmas in the United States changed the focus 
from this Mardi Gras on steroids into a holiday for families. And when that took place, by the 1850s, Protestant churches were opening their doors on Christmas Eve and, and Christmas and suddenly having Christmas services. And so, you know, if you go to church on Christmas Eve or, or Christmas Day in the United States, you really do owe the ability to worship to the poem, A Visit from St. Nick, or Twas the Night Before Christmas, because that changed everything and gave us what we know as an American Christmas. One other note, too. The American Christmas is like a Courier Knives painting. It's got snow and, and sleighs, and you go to Grandma's house, and, and you have all this stuff going on. Well, the reason for that image of an American Christmas, when in truth, 80% of the United States does not have white Christmases on a normal basis, is because of a Thanksgiving song. How? Well, at about the same time that Visit from St. Nick was written, a young man in Medford, or, uh, Medford, Massachusetts, was given the task by his preacher father of writing a song for a Thanksgiving community gathering. It was supposed to be sung by the children's choir. He couldn't come up with anything, and he heard all of these teenagers outside the window where he was working, making all this noise. And he went outside, and he noticed these teenage boys— now, remember, this is 1840. These teenage boys were drag racing their one-horse sleighs to impress girls. Sounds he went about back right. in and wrote a song called Jingle Bells, <laughs> mm -hmm. which was performed at the Thanksgiving service by the children's choir. And it was so popular, they asked the children to sing it again at the Christmas service that year in town, not in church, in town. And all of the people who were visiting from Boston and New York, took it back to those two cities as a Christmas song because they had heard it at Christmas. So we owe this image of an American Christmas that has been adopted by everything from Hollywood to Hallmark movies to Christmas cards to Courier Knives painting to what is essentially an 1840 Beach Boys song that was released at Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, that's so funny, Ace. I just love that. Seeing how we're still in, kind of in the music mode, let's talk about carols and caroling at Christmas. What are those traditions? Well, carols came about in the United States and in England in the Victorian age, specifically in the U.S., probably in the 1870s and 1880s is when it really saw its, its birth here. And people were starting to sing Christmas songs because churches now were open on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And they thought, let's spread the cheer a little more. And they actually got together first church choirs and then bands of, of musicians got together and went house to house singing Christmas songs. It was just a way to uh, kind of have some party, bring some spirit to Christmas and get to know each other in a new way. Um, from that, the folks who heard these songs invited people in for things like hot chocolate and cookies, and the tradition grew. Uh, caroling, therefore, has is an important part of an American Christmas literally for about 140 years. Uh, what's interesting is it was done in Germany and Austria and those areas by what they called mummers as early as 1500s. And these were professional musicians who would go into towns and sing Christmas songs. And they did it as a concert to uh, obviously um, make money. And, um, but you know, the amateur caroling really dates back about 140 years. And, of course, they were singing songs like Silent Night, um, O Come All Ye Faithful, Angels We Have Heard on High. 
the, a lot of the very same songs that we sing at Christmas today in, in the midst of the old carols. Um, Christmas music itself, popular Christmas music, uh, such as songs like um, White Christmas and those things that are sung often by carolers now, you know, that wasn't born until we actually got the phonograph record and, and, and you had radio stations pumping out those hits where people could learn them. So these people were singing songs that dated back uh, several hundred years, clear back. One song that is still sung by carolers today traces its roots at least back to 130 A.D. Oh, wow. And um, then another one of the carols that we sing, uh, that's probably the oldest complete carol that we still sing, uh, goes back to 900. Um, uh, there was a, a church leader in a 130 A.D. that uh, issued an edict, and this is over 200 years before the church started celebrating Christmas as a holiday, and he said whenever the second chapter of Luke was read, that all the congregations uh, should follow by singing Gloria in excess of Dales. Uh, and that's, we know that as Gloria today. So mm -hmm. at least part of that song existed in 130 AD. And if you think about it, for all of those congregations, those Christian congregations in 130 AD to have known that song, that song had to have been around for a while. That meant that the person who penned that song probably was alive in the first century and possibly even heard Jesus give one of his parables, or maybe knew the, knew the shepherds or the wise men. So mm -hmm. that makes that song very, very important from a historical standpoint uh, to Christmas. As, when you see it now, by the way, in your hymnals, it's often labeled a French carol because it was lost for hundreds of years and then um, was refound in, in ancient church text and translated into French in the 17 and 1800s. And that's why you often see that as a French carol today. The other old one I mentioned was O Come, Come Emmanuel, uh, known as the seven O's because each verse has a different interpretation of, of Jesus's life. And it's a wonderful song to, to embrace at Advent uh, because it does look at the many facets of Jesus. And you can imagine monks singing that in some monastery 1100 years ago and, and their voices echoing off the hall because that is a song that really does sound 1100 years old and it still resonates with us today and we still love it today. Mm -hmm. Ace, I think we're at a place where we're going to take a very short break. Uh, we're talking to Ace Collins. He's written a book, uh, one of 99 he's written, and this is called Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. When we come back, I want to learn something about candy canes uh, just to get things started. Uh, thank you for uh, joining me today. I'll take a short break and be right back with Ace Collins. back to the show. So glad to have Ace Collins as my guest. He's written uh, a lot of books. This one we're chatting about is Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. You're going to love this book. It's something you're going to want to have, and you're going to want to pull it out and share it with your uh, friends and family and do it every year. So, Ace, let's talk a little bit about candy canes. Candy canes are interesting. Uh, let's go back to 1670 in Cologne, Germany, and a choir master was having problems with keeping his children quiet during the service. 
So that didn't just happen in our lifetime. That, that existed. That existed uh -huh. at sixteen seventy, and there was this big Christmas Eve service coming up, and the children were supposed to sing the first or second song. And he thought for the next hour they're going to be up there passing notes to each other, talking to each other, you know, not behaving. How do I keep them in line? He went to a local candy shop, and he saw these hard stick candies. They were white. And he asked the guy about them, and he said, oh, yes, if you actually suck on these things, they'll last a couple hours. Inspiration struck. <laughs> but, the, but the choir master knew that if he handed out candy for no reason, the local priest as well as all of the parents and congregation were not going to be happy. So what he did was come up with a way to tell the story of Jesus with a candy cane. This this is some of the greatest imagination ever. <laughs> he had the candy maker bend every one of those canes into the shape of a staff. He handed them out before the service and explained to the children that that staff was the staff of the good shepherd. The white candy represented the purity of Christ and therefore taught a little lesson and he shared that lesson with the congregation. And so they didn't mind the fact that their kids were up there sucking on candy canes during the service after their song. And as a matter of fact, it actually made the service go much better because for the first time in recorded history in Cologne, <laughs> the children were behaving. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so that is where, that is how it became associated with Christmas. It, it's interesting in the fact that for the next 200 years or, or so, we saw the candy canes, and if you look back at pictures of Christmas, there were artist renderings of Christmas, and early Christmas cards in the mid-1800s, you saw the candy cane as still white, um, because candy had to be hand-painted back then. There wasn't a machine that could actually generate those stripes. Well, Bob McCormick was a uh, candy maker in Albany, Georgia, and he found a way to put stripes on candy, and so his first Christmas that he did that, he put three red stripes all the way around the candy cane. And he did that for a reason. They represented the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. The red represented the blood of the cross. And he handed those, those candy canes out to people and told the biblical story. When asked why he had done it, it was to honor his brother who was a priest. And so that is why the candy cane has colors and why those colors are red and why there are three stripes. And so that's the history of the candy cane. And it's really one of those sweet stories that um, involves a sweet candy. By the way, candy has been associated with Christmas for more than a thousand years in Eastern Europe. So mm -hmm. um, it's natural that we would, we would use candy canes the way we used them and up until uh, just after World War II, candy canes were given with children, but they were given to them by hanging them over the tree, and the children did not get to take those candy canes off the tree until they, after they'd opened their presents. Interesting. Now, you had mentioned that the candy canes would appear as white on the Christmas cards, and I know Christmas cards themselves have quite a long tradition, don't they? Yeah, Doc, um, Sir Henry Cole in, in Great Britain in the mid 1800s, when Christmas really took off in the UK, had a problem. It was considered rude in England at the time not to answer mail. If somebody mailed you something, you had to answer it. And he had over a thousand 
unanswered letters that had piled up in the month of November, and he had to answer them, and he was trying to figure out how, and he commissioned an artist to do a rendering of a family gathered around a table celebrating Christmas, and he had that that printed with a Christmas greeting on the inside, folded it over, put it in an envelope, and mailed out more than a thousand of them. The people who got them were so impressed that they went to the same shop and had that same card printed the next year. And so suddenly you had probably two or 300 people sending out cards, and that grew to where it became a very important part of the upper crust structure in society in Great Britain. With the advent in the 1870s of uh, cheap economical printing and also uh, the postal service, a reliable postal service, uh, suddenly Christmas cards flooded the market because people all over uh, the United States, Great Britain, and throughout Europe could buy them. Uh, the middle class could buy them economically. And, and thus began the great tradition of uh, Christmas. I, I've turned it into something a little different at our house. I send out about 140 Christmas cards a year. And if you're getting a Christmas card for me, you've impacted my life or my wife's life or my, my kids' lives. And I always scribble a note in every Christmas card I, I send out. And so I turn it into a Christmas thank you, thanking that person for making an impact in our lives and telling them what that impact is. And I, I think that is um, one way to use a Christmas card in modern times to have it had the same kind of impact it had 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. Ace, what do you think about the uh, the family update letters that often uh, go in Christmas cards? I enjoy reading them. Um, it gives me an opportunity to uh, find out what's going on. I do think with social media, they're not as important as they used to be mm-hmm. because most of us most of us follow people on a daily basis on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, and, and therefore those particular family letters probably aren't as significant. I, I do appreciate the ones that are written in such a way that at the bottom they'll have a PS that is specifically written to you and about something that that appeals to you in your life or something they want to share with you personally. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but I, I still think they're, you know, I think anytime we get a mailed-in uh, greeting from someone, no matter what the time of year it, it is, I, I think it it's something that we uh, we enjoy and embrace. And I think it, it has more meaning now, a mailed card does, than it did before the information age. I would agree. Now, I'd like to talk about Christmas trees. I know at the Collins house, there might be upwards of seven or eight trees inside your house. Yeah, yeah. On a normal basis, we actually are remodeling this year, so a couple of them aren't going to go up because we've got a room that has become a storage room. Okay. That's a normal <laughs> room that we use. Uh, but I've got one sitting right here. Uh, Christmas trees are interesting. You can go back. I, a tree has been associated with Christmas for a long time, but it wasn't initially a Christmas tree. Uh, during the winter seasons in Eastern Europe, they would have pageants for children, and and they would bring in an evergreen, and they would they would tie fruit onto it, and it would become a part of teaching the, about the Garden of Eden. So it was the creation tree. Uh, it morphed into being a Christmas tree first in Latvia. Uh, in Latvia, these evergreens represented uh, the eternal life that Christ promised. Uh, Green was a symbol of, of, of something never, ever dying. Uh, so it was a symbol for eternity, and therefore faith didn't die. And if you'd accepted Christ, 
you also were granted eternal life. The, the Latvian people brought these evergreens into their house. And in something that will frighten a lot of people today, they got their ladders out and they turned the tree upside down and hung them upside down from the ceiling. And that is the way Christmas trees were for the first 50 or 60 years of their existence. You hung them upside down from the ceiling. Now, I've always imagined what it would be like to be the husband doing that and having the wife say, no, honey, I think a little more to the left, you know, <laughs> because that happens when you're, you're putting them in the, in the right way in tree stands now. Right. Um, it was uh, in Germany where they were first turned over right side up. It was Martin Luther who in, in uh, about 1500, in the 1500s, it was walking through the woods one night and on a dark, dark night and thought, thought of the need for light and wishing he had a candle to guide him home. And then when he got home, he looked at the Christmas tree sitting in his house and went over and grabbed a candle and tied it to the Christmas tree and lit it and told his children, this is the candle. This candle represents the light that came into a dark world when Christ was born. So the first light on a Christmas tree actually stood for, the, for a Savior being born in a manger. That was a reminder of that. Uh, after that, more and more candles were tied onto a tree. And because the colors of Christmas meant a great deal to early Christians, the candle holders were different colors, or the candles that they put in the holders were different colors. Uh, the white candle represented the purity of Christ, um, the sinless life of Christ. The, a yellow candle represented the star hmm. uh, in the sky. Uh, a blue candle represented love. Red candle represented the um, the blood of Christ shed on the cross. The green candle, candle represented everlasting life. The blue candle, as I, well, I mentioned that with uh, love, but the purple candle uh, represented um, the royalty of, of Christ, that he was a king of kings and the prince of peace. And so if you actually look at Christmas lights today, the people from that time would have looked at those lights and seen the various colors, and each one of those colors would have had a significant uh, spiritual meaning to them. All right, Ace, I've got a couple more questions about Christmas trees that that if, uh, I want to ask, but I'm, I need to take a very short break. Uh, sure. Ace Collins is my guest. We're talking about his book, Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. This is a book you're going to want to have. You can uh, head over to Amazon uh, or go to acecollins.com. To check it out, we'll take a short break and be right back. Christmas today, we're talking about the stories behind the great traditions of Christmas with Ace Collins. He's written this book, and it's a fascinating read. You're going to want a copy of it. Uh, right before break, Ace, I was uh, had a couple more questions about Christmas. You know, when you talk about 
you know, taking a candle and attaching it to the tree. I can't think of anything more nerve-wracking because I remember my mother talking about having candles on the tree. How do you how do you relax when you've got little fires uh, on a tree that if it catches fire, the house goes up? I give Martin Luther credit for actually starting the first Christmas, you know, fire hazard. I mean, you (laughs) know, um, you know, you know, and, and so we were much, you know, obviously it's much safer now with LED lights that burn cool and things like that. But, you know, there are the images of, of, I, I can imagine how, how, how excited a child must be to watch those candles lit for the very first time. My grandmother talked about having candles on the tree as well. And, and that must have been, uh, so exciting to watch those candles burn and 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 have that Christmas tree come to life. But we also have to remember that back in the time, Christmas trees normally went up on Christmas Eve and mm-hmm. and they weren't up very long, so right. they didn't have a chance to dry out and things. And it was a family tradition to get together on Christmas Eve and actually decorate the tree. You still see that in a couple of old Hollywood movies. One of the questions I get a great deal that has to do with trees is that the tremendous World War II song that is still popular to this day, I'll Be Home for Christmas. And maybe I'll Be Home for Christmas will mean more in 2020 than it has at any time since 1944, uh, because there will be a lot of people who obviously won't be getting home for Christmas because of the virus and the, and, and the separation that we have. But there's a line in that song that says, and presence on the tree. You know, I'll be home for mm. Christmas and presents on the tree. And that confuses a lot of people. But you have to understand that up until the advent of things like electric trains, um, presents for children and adults were small enough that they could wrap them and then tie them on onto the tree as a decoration. So if you look at a lot of old Christmas cards, and I have a bunch of them, you'll actually see little boxes tied to the trees. that, rep- And those are gifts that people actually untied and took off the tree on, on Christmas morning. And so that's why the line in I'll Be Home for Christmas has a presence on the tree, not under the tree. It's so interesting. You know, I, I hear stories of my mother talking about that very thing. You go to bed on Christmas Eve, and the excitement was waking up in the morning and seeing the tree in the living room. Yeah. And there would be, well, she said, strings of popcorn on it and apples and oranges, and those were the gifts. Yeah, and we could, you know, another thing about the tree that we didn't mention earlier is... Uh, Early missionaries in the uh, first five or six centuries in Europe used the tree as an example of of Christ's uh, love for his people, uh, and and what and and also to describe the Trinity because the evergreen tree was triangular shaped, and they would say that it represented the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and, and so they would use it and the mistletoe plant as tracks, if you will, to people who couldn't read but who attach certain significance to plants in their region. And therefore, the ever the evergreen tree, um, which was, a, you know, turned into reefs, the reefs were circular, representing eternity. Uh, you know, the perfection of life is also uh, in, o, in an O form shape. So those were done that. And of course, mistletoe uh, grew to mean a great deal for hundreds of years to uh, Christians who could hold a piece of mistletoe in their in their hands and actually tell people the story of of Jesus life and and his crucifixion and resurrection from that plant and it's amazing how now we don't remember anything that the early missionaries taught about mistletoe and to give you an example when the vikings and when the missionaries got to the vikings and druids 
these two uh, groups looked at the mistletoe plant as being something mysterious because they believed that trees died in the wintertime, yet this plant in those trees did not die. How was that possible? Uh, that plant was view viewed as the plant of peace because the laws of the time said of two warring tribes, our families met out in the woods and they saw mistletoe on trees. They were not allowed to do battle. They had to find a way to compromise and seek peace. Well, when the early missionaries got there and heard those stories, they said, they explained to these people, Jesus was nailed to a cross, but he didn't die. Like the mistletoe plant, he lives and that greenery represents his eternal life. They had red and white berries on trees in that area, and the white berries represented the purity of Christ. The red berries represented his blood shed for them. Well, these people, when they became Christians, latched on to this story to such a high degree, they would nail mistletoe over their doors in the wintertime to signal to all of their guests that a Christian family lived there. Hmm. They would even put them over babies' cribs when they were born, and when a bride and groom were married, to remind them to keep faith at the center of their lives, they were married underneath the mistletoe plant. What's the last thing that happens at a wedding even 1,500 years ago? Yeah. It's a kiss. It's a kiss. Today, we only remember the—it's a kissing <laughs> plant. We do right. not remember this. We don't remember it as a, as a visual track yeah. to explain the gospel like the early missionaries used it. Yeah, I so appreciate the story of mistletoe. Uh, just to jump back to trees, uh, I think I remember uh, from a previous conversation I've had with you about, did it was it your grandmother who had a tradition of uh, all blue light tree? All blue lights on her tree. My grandmother Shell did in Salem, Arkansas, and and it was a cedar tree that that Grandpa would cut down, and only thing she put on it is were blue lights. And uh, uh, Christmas traditions and songs are like time machines because they can take you back to a moment. They can wipe away the years. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you can be young again and childlike, and you can smell the smells and hear the sounds and see the the scenes that played out in front of you, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And in in the case of whenever I see a blue light, a, you know, a tree that only has blue lights, I think back to my grandmother. I can smell the smells. I can picture the table she sets. I can, I can remember how she invited people who didn't have family coming into our into her house at Christmas to join her family. Um, the sweetness of the holiday season comes alive to me in a very real way. And so I've always called Christmas songs and traditions the only true time machines we have because they come back each and every year and we remember them. And therefore they awaken memories that otherwise would have been lost. Also consider this. Um, would we, would we as, as people today really know much about Bing Crosby or Perry Como or Nat King Cole without them having this, these incredible Christmas hits that they had? Mm -hmm. uh, Christmas makes an artist um, almost immortal because if they get a monster Christmas hit and it latches on like White Christmas does, did for Bing or... Um, the Christmas song, Mel Torme song that Nat King Cole recorded, uh, you know, Perry Como and, and the songs that he cut. Those people are played each and every year because of their Christmas music. They had monster hits on the charts back then with other songs. We never hear those songs, but we do hear the Christmas songs. Uh, Dinah Shore charted more than 400 times back in the 40s and 50s. 
but she never had a Christmas hit, and so we never hear the music of Dinah Shore. That's so true. But but Judy Garland only charted 17 times in her life, and we still hear Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas each and every holiday season, and therefore we remember Judy. And, yeah. and so Christmas songs, uh, and, and this is going to remain true forever, uh, the Carpenters, the, you know, the Carpenters and their great Christmas hit, um, Harry Simeon Corral with uh, with Do You Hear What I Hear and Little Drummer Boy. Um, those songs uh, made those artists immortal and they became a part of the reason Christmas is so special because we get to hear those songs we love just sung by the original artist each and every year. And that means a great deal to us and it means a great deal to the holidays. Yeah, you know, I, I saw Mel Torme uh, in concert. I think it was in, a, in like the month of June and he did a, like a three-song Christmas uh, uh, melody, um, and I think it was the highlight of the show. Well, you know, when you look at you know Torme and his buddy were writing songs for a, in 1946 for a uh, um, a Hollywood musical, and it was the hottest day of the year, and they could <laughs> yeah. not stay cool. They had fans on. They were wearing Hawaiian shirts and shorts. They were sweating, and Torme. Uh, thought about Christmas in New England and started talking about it. And his friend thought about his Christmas in New England, and they started mentioning things that they loved about those those cold-weather days. And within five minutes, they were writing a song, Jack Frost nipping at your nose, you know, <laughs> chestnuts roasting on an open right. fire. And it became, within 30 minutes, this song. They forgot about all the wor- all about the work they were supposed to do. And then became the debate of who do we take the song to? You know, and Torme leaned on his friend and the publisher going, let's take it to Nat King Cole. Mm-hmm. He could do an incredible job. No one else wanted to do that. So Torme had to have something on the guys because they eventually relented and let him do that. Why? Because uh, Nat King Cole was an African-American artist and his his music was not played in the South. And that was going to cost them a lot of record time, uh, radio time. It was going to cost them a lot of sales. Mm-hmm. Well, Torme... Torme won the battle. Nat King Cole cut the song. And in 1946, this great singer added a bit of color to the Christmas season. And he broke the color line before Rosa Parks did, before Jackie Robinson and baseball did. That's a great point. It was Nat King Cole that finally brought color to Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I I think that is one of the great Christmas stories of all time as well. Yeah. Ace, we're going to take a uh, break here in a couple minutes, but maybe you could talk about uh, gift giving. Uh, I know there's a lot of Christians that think uh, the commercialization of Christmas is not a good idea. And so gift exchange isn't uh, merited, but what can you tell us about gift exchange? Sorry. Oh, are we going to break? No, we're going to go to break. I'm sorry. We're going to go to break in two minutes. So okay, I'm sorry. In other words, well, I, 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 I will put, pick it. What I'll do is I'll pick it up right where you asked the question. Then okay, and, I'll, and I've got if I've got two minutes, I'll do it. I'll do a short version. Okay, great. You know, gifts are a fascinating thing because they're the oldest Christmas tradition. Uh, the wise men brought gifts to Jesus, and, and that is the first gifts at Christmas. Most of the other things that we have uh, embraced at the Christmas season have come much, much later. But this can be traced back to the very first Christmas. And the gifts they brought brought were such incredible gifts. You know, um, frankincense and myrrh, you know, were spices used, uh, one for worship, one for a funeral. How mm-hmm. did these wise men know that Jesus was going to give his life for, for us, for our sins? Um, 
gold was a gift you only gave to royalty. How did they know that Jesus was the Son of God, therefore the King of Kings? It's a question that has remained unanswered in the gospel, but obviously they were given some insight to have picked out those three special gifts to give the baby Jesus. Therefore, if you're participating in gift giving, you are participating in the oldest custom of all time. You mentioned the commercialization of Christmas. Uh, Easter is not commercialized. It's been tried. It just hasn't worked. And, and therefore, it, it basically is just Easter weekend. Because Christmas has been successfully commercialized, really dating back to the advent of a, you know, a visit from St. Nick a night before Christmas uh, poem being released in the United States and opening it up for children everywhere, uh, that commercialization of Christmas has stretched Christmas to being five, six, seven weeks long. That gives Christians a five to seven week window to talk about the reason for the season. So rather than than see the commercialization of Christmas as as you know throwing a blight on Christmas, I think that God wants us to see the commercialization of Christmas as giving us an opportunity to talk about Jesus for five to seven weeks at a time that we don't get to. We're talking about the book, The Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas. I was signing copies of this book about 10 years ago at a Sam's Club in Indianapolis, Indiana, and a lady bought 23 copies. And I asked her, I said, y'all must really love Christmas. And she said, we know very little about it. We're Jewish, but I think we ought to know about why we're putting up a tree and why we're giving gifts to each other. Without the commercialization of Christmas, that Jewish lady wouldn't have bought those 23 books and wouldn't have been curious enough to share with her entire family what the meanings of each one of those traditions is all about. Yeah, that's fantastic. Take a little break. Ace Collins is my guest. We're talking about the stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. We'll be right back. Dreaming of a white Christmas. Welcome back. We're talking to Ace Collins, his book, Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. It's uh, one you will enjoy from start to finish. Ace, let's chat a little bit about Handel's Messiah. Yeah. When Handel wrote Messiah, he was a has-been. I mean, this is a guy who was once the Elvis of his time. I mean, yes, he was a composer, but he was also a conductor, and conductors were huge stars. They were rock stars at the time. But he wrote oratorios, and the oratorios had fallen out of favor, and he was actually a man who was overextended. He was living on the wrong side of the tracks in a very small little home and lived in fear of being taken to a debtor's prison because he owed so much money. Therefore, he rarely answered his door. He pretended he wasn't home. And he got a letter one day, and the letter was from an eccentric friend of his that no one had paid any attention to. He was kind of what that crazy uncle everybody has. And this, this man named Jennings gave uh, Handel an idea of writing an oratorio based on the scripture in the Old Testament that predicted the birth of Christ, that forecast a Messiah coming. Well, Handel 
wasn't selling music. No one wanted him to conduct any orchestras or choirs, and he had nothing to do. And so for the next 20 some odd days, he sat down and put together an oratorio. Now, that's kind of silly because it would be like putting together new music for the Charleston today. I mean, yeah. nobody was going to buy it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, but he got an invite from an old friend to go to Ireland to conduct a series of small choir performances to raise money for a charity hospital. He went to escape debtors as much of, as much as any other reason. And he took along his new music and he taught the new music to uh, the choirs and people in Ireland fell in love with Handel's latest work, Handel's Messiah. Well, word got back to England about this and, and he started performing it there as well. And on one of his first performances, the King of England, King James himself came and, and sat in the audience. And when he heard the hallelujah chorus was so overcome that he stood, well, you can't let a king stand without everybody else standing too. And therein began the tradition of standing during the Hallelujah Chorus, hmm. started by King James. The interesting thing about it was for um, many years, uh, Handel's Messiah was performed at Easter, uh, and Easter only. Uh, and it, it really is somewhat of an Easter, uh, uh, it has an Easter viewpoint, if you will, um, but w the need to raise money uh, for organizations at Christmas time and the generosity that people felt at Christmas caused it to be shifted about 100 years ago to being sung at the Christmas season. And a song that was written by a man who was afraid he was going to debtor's prison, a man who truly was the least of these at the time, Handel, has become um, the most important tool that we have ever seen for raising money for the least of these at Christmas each and every year. And so no music has raised more money for people who have nothing, uh, the poorest of the poor, than a song written by the man at a time who was forgotten and the poorest of the poor. I, I've been to that church in Ireland where his first performance took place, and I remember the date being April, so it was around Easter time. Yeah. And I know it was poorly attended, but uh, that's... Uh, it's changed. <laughs> it has changed. It has changed. Word caught on. Yeah, yeah word caught on. on that this was a, and it, it brought oratorios back in style for uh -huh. a while. You know, when you find out the whole story, the, the Messiah went away for a while, Handel's Messiah did, and then came back as, as part of some English music festivals uh, about, a, about 70 or 80 years after Handel died. And then it took off after that and is, was starting to be performed for Easter and then eventually Christmas. And and that's why we know it to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, you can't picture uh, a Christmas celebration without at least once during that three or four week period hearing Handel's Messiah mm -hmm. perform choir. Ace, why are poinsettias a Christmas tradition? That's one of our rare American traditions of Christmas. Um, and by American, I mean North American. Um, it's a plant from um, Mexico. And there was a legend that the poinsettia plant and by the way, we even debate on how you say that plant. I know. I, I don't know if I said it right or not. I was, CNN, I was looking at a report on CNN yesterday going, okay, is it pronounced this way or that way? Is it, you know, and supposedly both are accepted. But um, the poinsettia plant was, um, uh, has this story around it. Uh, a child uh, looked at the baby Jesus in the manger and had no gift for the baby Jesus. So she went and dug up a plant and brought him this green plant 
set it down in front of him and and the leaves magically transformed to red. And that was a part of the uh, Mexican Christmas celebration, you know, uh, 200 years ago, uh, that poinsettia plant. And then the red and green are colors of Christmas. So, you know, creating a legend to go with the red and green um, makes sense. It was brought mm-hmm. to America by a man named Poinsettia, who was a um, ambassador to the country of Mexico from the United States. And he started growing it and, and it became associated with the Christmas season because of him. And probably associated mostly with Christmas because it just so happens the leaves, and it's not a flowering plant, it's leaves, and the leaves do turn from green to red when the world goes into kind of a dark period of winter time. So the less light the plant gets, the redder the leaves become. And that's why it's the red and green uh, is why it's associated with Christmas. By the way, it's actually not a, a flowering plant, it's a tree or a bush and in the right environment, can grow 12 to 15 feet tall. I did not know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, what about this, Ace? You get a card from somebody, and, and they sign it, Merry Xmas. Should we be offended? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> not at all. Uh, for the first uh, more than 1,000 years uh, that we celebrated Christmas, we ca- most people re- wrote it out as Xmas. Why Xmas? Well, because X was the first letter in Christ's name in the Greek alphabet, most people couldn't read, but they understood that MAS stood for worship. They knew that. They also knew that the X stood for Christ. And if you put the two together, it meant worship Christ. If you ask somebody that was illiterate um, in the Dark Ages, what is your faith, and gave them a pencil or a pen, they would scratch out an X. you know, going back to the times when Christians were persecuted, if someone was stoned, you would go to the spot where they were stoned and you would write an X in the dirt going X marks the spot of where someone gave his life for their faith. And so X was a very important part of of the celebration of, of being a Christian. As a matter of fact, you more people probably put X's over their doors than put fish over their doors uh, during that time to symbolize their faith. Another reason the X was used is because ink was very expensive and paper was very expensive. So when they wrote Christ's name, they would actually often say, use an X rather than Christ or Jesus to save ink and save paper. And so naturally, when you wrote Christmas, you were going to write worship Christ, X must, mm-hmm. and you would write it the very same way. So it was only when the printing process became economical uh, that you started seeing Christ must spelled out. Um, and, and so if you go back far enough, Xmas does mean worship Christ. And if you ask Paul or Timothy or any of those people and they saw Xmas written out, they wouldn't recognize it as an affront. They would recognize it as how they would have written it during that time. Mm-hmm. All right, Ace, we're down to two minutes. So um, can you talk about the 12 days of Christmas in two minutes? Uh, probably not. Okay. It give you, an idea. Uh, you know, it was a. Yeah, it's each one of those twelve days represented something different to the early to the Catholic Church in, in England. It was uh, used as a code song. Now, what was it written as a code song? We don't know that, but it was used to teach certain bits of of uh, theology. Uh, the partridge in a pear tree. You know, the first day of Christmas, partridge in a pear tree. That represented Christ, the partridge in the pear tree, the Christ on the cross, because the 
the partridge was the only animal in that area, only bird in that area that would lay down its life for its flock. You know, then you go to two. What, what's, what's the two? Old Testament, New Testament, three, the trilogy. And you go in from there, and if you actually read my book, you can, you can find out what I found out from Catholic historians about what each one of those things m- meant. The two, I think, they're the most interesting. Uh, uh, ten Lords a-leaping, mm-hmm. that's, the, uh, ten, that's the Ten Commandments, because lords are, you know, they were the judges of their time. You know, and the eleven pipers piping, that represents the eleven disciples who took the word out. Yes, there were twelve disciples, but one of them was Judas. So only 11 of the originals took it out, and they were the 11 pipers piping. So you can go through there and find fruits of the Spirit and milkmaids. You know, Christ came for the lowest people on earth, and, and as well as the kings and, and all of this. And it's the imagery in that is very special. Once again, yeah. was it written that way, or did did some some person within the church figure out how to use it that way? We'll never answer that question, yeah. but it was used by the Catholic Church for generations to teach those lessons. And you can learn uh, about more about the 12 Days of Christmas and a lot of other great traditions in Ace's book called Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. Ace Collins has been my guest. That wraps up our show for the day. Have a great night, everyone, and I'll see you next time.